Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Oh, it is? It is. What? And listen, I know it is week two of March, but it is week one of our Women's History Month. Yeah, get on our schedule. I know. Get on our schedule. We're a mess. We're no, we mess. are not a mess. Black History Month is a goddamn fucking mess. Yeah, but we were a week behind on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we weren't. No, we weren't. Let's just forget all about that. It's fine. We're here now. We are point. here now. Now I'm here. Yes. All right. And we've had a glass of champagne each, so we're feeling pretty good. But and a half a cup of coffee each. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're riding pretty high at the moment. <laughs> uh, I'm also like, I feel like I've had so many like, stimulants but my brain is still really tired and so it's a really weird dichotomy going on within myself right I'm now. really hoping my energy maintains through the end of this episode and then I just crash like I just want to crash hard yep and sleep through the night like I already warned y'all if the mini episode is up a little later didn't get up in the morning yeah that's <laughs> all I can hope for but we were trying to decide what we wanted to do for women's history month uh this month or this year and I feel like we still don't have like a clear, cohesive vision of what the month is going to look like. Which we don't really have to. I know that last year we covered everything that was first wave. So I was like, well, then we would do second wave this year. But we've covered so much of the second wave. I don't want to repeat ourselves too much. And we'd have to get really deep. And there would be a lot of repetition because we've covered so many of like the major events during that time. So I think we are just kind of kind of do like a general... Yeah, like women's Women's history. What's up? Yeah, what's up, women? Hi. Hi. So this was actually a really fun one for me, but also a super complicated one for me. So much more complicated than I anticipated. So I had suggested this to you. I was like, this, I was absolutely enamored with Egyptian, ancient Egyptian history Uh and culture whenever I was a kid. I had all the books. I had a pop-up book about mummification, which looking back now is pretty morbid. But Uh, like that, I feel like that's a thing that kids get into. Like, I feel like every kid has their tragedy that they kind of latch onto. Like for me, one of the big ones was Titanic. Oh, yeah. Another big one was the Holocaust. I was like very interested in those tragedies for some reason in particular as a child, where I feel like there is like a certain story of things that are really twisted that happened a long time ago that kind of resonates with each of us in a weird way yeah and I think that for a lot of people mummies ancient Egypt and all of that is like a big obsession it was a few things I think there was this mystical quality about all of that stuff you know the gods fascinated me Egyptian gods fascinated me so much more than Greek gods not that Greek mythology wasn't interesting to me it was but there was something about this in particular then there was the media we had. We had the 90s The Mummy movie, which uh-huh. was huge for me growing up. And then Prince of Egypt. I was just going to say Prince of Egypt was huge huge to me. And I was going to mention this too. I think that there's a lot of people that are religious oh. that have a lot of fascination with ancient Egypt because there is so much tied to ancient Egypt with like 
Jewish when I people was a kid, with Catholic. I mean, there's so much tied in religious history yes. in ancient Egypt where I feel like we learned some of that stuff and things of that era, mm-hmm. which kind of like draws toward that. And then Prince of Egypt was a big one. Oh, huge. Because it kind of shows you why worshiping the gods were bad and why worshiping the one true God yes. was the most powerful. But, but then I had soundtrack slapped songs slapped that soundtrack hit so hard i can still watch the movie without getting pissed off because i love the music i so set much. my religious trauma to the side yeah that when goes prince to of sleep. egypt is on that like, goes to it sleep is, for two hours so i can watch this masterpiece it is so good and yeah i mean ask me which books of the bible i have read like from one end to the other and exodus is in there and that's old testament which yeah. is dry as hell yeah. Usually, but, but Exodus is bad as hell. Like that's where all the shit goes down. Yeah, you're and that's why Egypt. it's fascinating. If you're in Egypt, shit is happening. Plagues are happening. I was happening. gonna say that's like when all the plagues and shit yes. should happen. It's the Prince of Egypt book of the Bible, yeah. and it is amazing. I mean, I'm not advocating for you going to read your Bible, but like, okay, this was funny though. I was listening to another podcast where um, <laughs> one of the hosts was like. I love the Bible. There's so many good stories in there. There I don't think any of them are real, but they're really good stories. I agree. There are fun stories in the Bible. There are also horrific stories in the Bible. But that makes them interesting, too. Mm. They're just, it's filled with great stories. If you believe in it. So with all of that said, we encourage you to rage on. We're not there yet. But uh, with all of that said, we were talking about like what we would do this month and I've always had a massive interest because of my interest in ancient Egypt. I always had a massive interest in the women that ruled because in the ancient world, it seemed so shocking that there were women rulers. But yet it seemed like it was more likely the further back you went, like the more BC you went, I feel like but that only, was that, but only within that kind of only like era. in Egypt and only in Egypt. Oh, Egypt was very insular. So there is a awesome um, author. Gosh, what is her name? Was it Cooney? Yes. Kara Cooney? Kara Cooney. So there's an awesome author. Her name is Kara Cooney. She's written a couple of books about this topic, um, specifically about the topic of female rulers in Egypt. And she made a point of saying that Egypt was so insular, like it was so isolated because it was kind of blocked off on every side because there was there was desert on like three of the four sides and then there was a great sea on the other side that kind of kept it kind of on its own. It was harder to get to and to travel to and from. Right. And so its culture was kind of, even though there were a lot of people from a lot of different cultures there, the culture itself of Egypt was pretty um, unaffected by the outside world. Yeah. And so because of that, they really went by their own rules. And so having women rulers was less unlikely there than it would have been in Rome or Greece or any of the places surrounding Egypt at that that time. Yeah. But what's interesting too is that a lot of times the women were in power only as like placeholders until another man could take the throne. Absolutely. Because they were still running on this like very patriarchal system. They were just kind of there to step in to support like if they had a young son that obviously can't make the laws of the land. So the mother is going to step forward and take the place of their son until they're of age to do so or for brothers or husbands or people that are unable to do so. They were mostly co-regents. And even in the case of 
Cleopatra, who is obviously like the most famous. She would go back and forth to being co-regent. Well, she was always between different people. <laughs> she was always a co-regent, but she was kind of the one who was in charge, right? right? Like it was like she was co-regent in name only. Like everyone kind of knew who was in charge there, right? And that's kind of the common theme that you have with at least two of the three women that we're going to talk about. Yeah, is that. They were technically not in charge, but they were definitely in charge. Like they, they were the ran, ones making the calls. Yeah, right? they ran it for sure. But it is interesting to think about as a whole why male leaders were seen as so much more of a commodity than female leaders, even to this day. But I think talking about it within the scheme of ancient of ancient Egypt, it's really interesting. So this Karakuni talks about how a woman can only produce one, maybe two children a year, right. where mm-hmm. a man can produce hundreds of children without any hormonal changes, without any, without having to go through pregnancy and any of the sensitivity during that time. So she explains... So she is there at a moment of crisis to protect the patriarchy when something goes wrong with with the succession from man to man. As soon as it can go back to the patriarchal system, she is removed. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense when you talk about ancient Egypt specifically was so very focused on the monarchy. They don't ever use that word, but it gets across what I'm trying to say. It was about keeping the kingship in like its line right essentially because it it couldn't go outside of its like specific bloodline because the divinity of the bloodline was so important yeah more important than i think it it is in almost any other it's so important that like we've talked about cultures in in the past where incest was part of things right but this This is this is like uh, this is game of thrones shit right here it is like it is so much incest to keep the bloodline pure that it is You are marrying brothers, uncles, yeah. children. It yeah. is really messed up. It's, it's not truly. like it's cousins and second cousins. No, no, no. This is like... Directly, we have a parent in common. Yeah, like real gross shit. Yeah. Um, which is also why, you know... We're going to get to it when we talk about Cleopatra, but I have to say it right off the bat because I think when you think about Cleopatra, you always think of like, oh, this undeniable beauty, right? It's unlikely. It's unlikely that she was gorgeous. However, she was really fucking smart, super charming. People said that her voice was really nice to listen to. Like every way that she's described is like beautifully. Yes. Yes. But they never describe her appearance except for in like depictions of her that have been drawn. But that kind of runs the gambit because a lot of times these female pharaohs were portrayed more manly in their busts and in their paintings Mm -hmm. and things like that to kind of keep up that same appearance of like power and strength. Yeah. And so it's very difficult to know. And we will talk about this when we get to Cleopatra, who we're going to get to kind of last because she was the last in the line of the three that we're going to speak about today. But it's kind of difficult when talking about Cleopatra because we don't really know what she looked like. Not that that's the most important thing, but I feel like that has been made to be an important thing in her story. That's what I was going to say. She's been made to be like she was Elizabeth Taylor. Right. And genuinely, I get the impression from the things that I've read in the prep for this episode, which was a lot. I read so many articles, I feel like, uh, uh, for for this episode. But I get the sense really that I don't think that she was a great beauty. I, In fact, I, I, I think that that's very much not the case. But a lot of people who point to her being very plain or very homely are pointing to like her 
image on coins and things like that in yeah. which she does look more quote unquote masculine. Well, and, and then that there's also could different also be beauty standards right, too. And that could also be a play, right? Like you said, where she's intentionally portraying herself as more masculine on purpose. Right. So I kind of just get the sense that she is a very average looking woman. Like there is Honestly, nothing. She's probably a little bit worse for wear than average because of the long history of incest in her family. There's, chances that there was some health problems there was some physical disfiguration and things like that from what I've read but um, yeah because I know that I was reading that there's like some other people in her family there's someone with like a really big head oh I'm certain I mean (laughs) I'm certain there is some of that but she was still able to seduce like seduce for the other incredibly like powerful men Mm -hmm. she was able to also like not seduce romantically but seduce so many people around her because she was so smart and charming and I think that looks aside it doesn't matter in the end because she had the way about her I think that was very enticing to people she had that x factor which is why I think we think of her as being beautiful because we put those two things together like she was so charming and blah 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 blah. blah. she also did use her sexuality I think in a way that like a lot of women weren't doing at that time done yeah no and a lot of you know makeup use and things like that so I think that that's why we would kind of use those clues to create this image of her and also in pop culture I doubt we're talking about the amount of incest going on in these families no. so we're not gonna be like putting prosthetics on Elizabeth Taylor's face you know no what I mean? no I mean also she wasn't she didn't look like Elizabeth Taylor just in any way in no. any way in but any okay way. so let's jump in let's start talking I wanted to kind of start off with talking about women in ancient Egypt just kind of in general just to okay. give a, a general overview because like I said Uh, Egypt is kind of separate from the rest of the ancient world. We consider it to be a great ancient civilization as we should alongside, you know, the Romans and the Greeks uh, of the of the time. But it was set aside because of the way that they operated. Women in ancient Egypt were ahead of their time. They could not only rule the country, but they also had many of the same basic human rights as men. And like we said, when they ruled the country, it was always in a co-regent capacity, even if it was in name only um, things. In fact, there was no word for queen in ancient Egypt. Right, exactly. It was always considered a female king. Yeah, right. and that's why a lot of times archaeologists and things would be confused when they were first learning about a lot of these female rulers because in the inscriptions they would find they would see the word king in there and get confused right Right. as a ruler now I'm sure that there was a word for queen as the partner of the king Uh, but when we're talking about like a pharaoh there was no like Ferris ruling queen right yes right So (laughs) this is not to say that the society was still not a patriarchal one. Like we said, men were more likely to hold positions of authority within the government and management roles outside of the home, while women were still more likely to manage the household and were responsible for things like cooking and sewing. While just across the sea in Rome, women were mostly expected to be silent in public and held no political or legal rights, Egyptian women could own land Uh, choose whom they married as well as divorced and owned businesses. Wow. So there's an Egyptologist named Barbara Watterson, and she wrote, quote, in ancient Egypt, a woman enjoyed the same rights under the law as a man. What her rightful entitlement rights were depended on her social class, not her sex. All landed property descended 
in the female line from mother to daughter on mm-hmm. the assumption, perhaps, that maternity is a matter of fact, while mater- while paternity a matter of opinion. A woman was entitled to administer her own property and dispose of it as she wished. She could buy, sell, be a partner in legal contracts, be executor in wills and witness a legal and witness to legal documents, bring an action at court, and adopt children in her own name. An Damn. An, yeah, an ancient Egypt... They had all that back then? Right, yes. Yeah, you could adopt kids. <laughs> I know, you could own property. Going I mean, to court. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, an ancient Egyptian woman was legally competent and capable, which we don't see... You Today. Don't even, right, yeah, you don't even see that. She's like, in, fucking hysterical. In Victorian England. No. You know? In contrast, an ancient Greek woman was supervised by a male guardian and many Greek women who lived in Egypt during the Ptolemaic period, observing Egyptian women acting without this guardian, were encouraged to do so themselves. In short, an ancient Egyptian woman enjoyed greater social standing than many modern women of other societies, both ancient and modern. So, Which probably gave the women... The um, I was going to say the cojones because I can't think of any other word, but the ambition. There we go. To be able to um, be rulers themselves because they had they didn't have that inequality in the same level as other as different parts of the world did. Right. They were seen as capable and competent. So right. like they weren't given necessarily the the same status as men. Like men definitely were still seen as a um, higher status. They were more likely to hold Much office. Like today. And, I mean, honestly, like it reminds that. me a lot of like what we go through now. Is it more common for you right. know, powerful white men to remain powerful? Right. Yes, of course. But there's still all different kinds of people that feel ambitious enough to go after that power still right yeah i mean and and the society is telling you you are capable you're competent we, yeah. we know that you can kind of advocate for yourself right which does allow you more space to say like okay well if i can advocate for myself why can't i run this country like there's no reason why i couldn't and to be honest and listeners let us know if you want this we could do an entire episode just on like the the everyday ordinary roles of of women in ancient societies because like it is fascinating to see i mean a lot of times people talk about sparta and the way that women had a lot of agency in those um societies as well but it is it is really fascinating but for today's episode i just kind of wanted to give you that so that we had like a little bit of a backdrop into the world that these women were coming up in and like maybe why they felt like they had the ability to rule in their own right totally who are we starting with so i think that we should probably start with um yes hatchisut who Hat- I call Hattie. Hat- Hattie. We're going to call her Hattie. I know. I've said I had it- nicknames for all of them because it was just annoying to type the names each time. So we got Hattie, we got Neff, and we got Cleo. Yes. Oh, good idea. <laughs> good idea. Um, I did type her name out every time, and it was annoying. Hatshepsut. So it's Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. But it's kind of hard to say quickly. Hatshepsut. But she was the sixth pharaoh in the 18th dynasty. And I have to say... And the foremost of noble ladies. She was fascinating to me. I 
really expected to go into this episode kind of focusing more on the other two because Nefertiti and Cleopatra obviously are names and images that you see in modern culture so often. Right. And our girl Hattie here is not one that you see all Don't that often. Don't sleep on our girl Hattie. But she is fascinating. So when she was in her early teens, so maybe like 14 or 15, it's it's a little unclear, she was widowed when her husband and her brother, <laughs> her half-brother, Pharaoh Thutmose II, died. According to custom, she was then made regent for her stepson, Thutmose III, because at the time he was only like one or two years old. He was and he very, was very the young. and he was the son of another wife of Thutmose the second. Yes. So she It was like her stepson. Is her stepson, yeah. Her stepson nephew. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she Honestly, had, had like, a there's daughter. so much of that. There's like then her brother husband did this. It was very <laughs> confusing because I was clicking between articles and there were some articles that would describe him, Thutmouse the sec- the third. They all have the same name. Right. And some would describe him as her son and some would describe him as her nephew. And I'm like, are these two different people? They're nope. not. It is her her son, nephew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thutmouse the, the third. And yes, she had had one child. She has one child throughout her life. It is a daughter uh, with her husband brother. The son was only about one or two years old. Very, very young. Obviously, far too young to rule. So even though he was Candy crowned... for everybody! Yeah, he was crowned as king at that young age. She became regent and that was very customary there was nothing weird about that it was like no she like we said the- you would step in for mm-hmm. the next heir until they would be able to perform their duties right i mean and if you were to think like oh well why wasn't his mother the regent well she wasn't the first wife basically yeah. like like there's a hierarchy here yeah hattie was the first wife so this would ensure, though, that she was ruling even in a regency capacity for the next 15 years or so because yeah. they weren't going to hand over the nation to Thutmose Third until he was about 15 years old. So right. she was already kind of in it for a while. And she really did kind of rule, actually, because in early depictions of Thutmose Third's kingship it was clear that though still a baby he was the pharaoh so you can see these depictions where they've kind of got him a little baby pharaoh but like kind of in like a grown person's body like like real depictions of him as the king and then there are depictions of hattie kind of standing out off to the side right in this regency support of right and then the third. you start to see slowly, like around the seventh year of her regency, the depictions change. And, and she starts having her name and pictures more prominent than that of her nephew son. Right. Yes. And she's also in clothing that would suggest that she is the pharaoh. Like they right. wouldn't give her that flail and crook, which is the thing, the things that they hold. You know, you often see it like across their chest. Yeah. Uh, she's holding that. She's bare chested. She's got the pharaonic false beard, that like fake kind of. Yeah. Beard they that would see. often um, paint her with muscles and a beard and all of that is the traditional male garb of a pharaoh. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the thing that I kind of love about her is how misunderstood she is, because when they finally discovered her and there were reasons why, and we'll get to it, why she wasn't discovered for uh, a minute. But when they discovered her in the 1930s, whenever Egyptology was all the rage and all of these like Europeans were going to Egypt and um, kind of like discovering, discovering things, when they right. initially discovered her, they believed that her taking over was this very like vain, ambitious self-serving act that she was this like unscrupulous woman who like went in and took over right but more recent but more recent scholarship actually suggests that it was a political crisis or a threat to the throne or another branch of the royal family that made her feel obligated to take over fully as pharaoh she was yeah, like Look, certainly this because kid is like the divinity, seven yeah you know was more important than anything else they couldn't have somebody else they couldn't have a weak link for someone to come in and take over because there was a baby in charge, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. So she needed to declare herself king in order to protect not only her stepson, but also the entire like kingdom. Like that's and kind of how she thought of it. the bloodline, yeah. Mm-hmm. She was actually incredibly smart too. As Pharaoh had he reestablished the trade networks that had been halted during the Hyksos... Hyksos, Hyksos, Hyksos occupation of Egypt, which led to building the wealth of the 18th dynasty. She oversaw preparations and funding for a mission to the land of Punt, which was a major trading hub. The trading expedition occurred during the ninth year of her reign, and they set out in her name with five ships accommodating 210 men. Goods such as frankincense and myrrh were then transferred to Egypt, getting ready for Jesus's birthday. That's right. With this, they planted 13 live myrrh trees, which is the first recorded attempt to transplant foreign trees. Yes. That's pretty cool. It, it is very cool. So the frankincense that they got from Punt, they would grind down and uh, that became coal eyeliner and it's its first recorded use. So all yeah. of that very infamous imagery of Egyptians with this elaborate eye makeup, this yeah. elaborate eye, you know, cat eye eyeliner comes from her reign. Have you ever used coal as eyeliner? Just like a real coal? You know, I feel like I did for like something educational whenever I was in like middle school. Like I feel like they maybe did it in school or something like that. I did a production of a like a one man show when I was in college and I had to like burn and kind of singe and hit with charcoal my costume for it. Mm-hmm. And so I had extra bits of charcoal and my mom would tell me that she would like dip a a little like eyeliner pencil yep. or thing in water and use yep. that. And I'm like, I'm going to do this for the show. And then I took the rest and kind of smudged it on my eyes to make it kind of a yeah. smoky look. But it was, it was great eyeliner. I was like, this is really good. Yeah. And I just love, of course it was a woman King who was like, you know, we can make makeup, right? Yeah. Like, we don't. We can look good doing this. We can be real hot, and for years and years, everybody's gonna look back on us, and they're gonna be like, "The ancient Egyptians were so hot." <laughs> because, like, let's be real. Part of the appeal, like when you yeah. watch the Mummy, or when you watch even animated, they did not need to make all of those animated people so hot. In they were of all Egypt. gorgeous. I mean, very they attractive. Get, they've always given Jesus a twelve pack. They didn't need to make Jesus like that. Moses, Moses in Prince of Egypt. <sighs> Moses, Sexy. mother, may I? Ramses. You've got the voice of Ray Fiennes and he looks like that. Mm. Come on. Come Mm. on. Okay. Anyway, so you might be thinking, you know, she ruled for like 
20 years, a little over 20 years, almost 22 years. Which is a lot. It's a lot. For the fact that her stepson, wasn't it supposed to be that when he was like 15 or whatever? He was definitely of age to take over. And so you might be wondering like, why didn't he take over? Yeah. And there was an Egyptologist in this Smithsonian article that I read that kind of talked about it. And it seems like actually their relationship was fine. Like it's not like he was under house arrest or anything. He was basically (laughs) out, which because you read all of those like tutor, like when you're you're studying. He was locked in the tower exactly <laughs> when you're studying like um like english history that stuff happens all the time yeah. they like lock them up or something but that's not what she did they they seem to have an okay relationship so he was off learning how to be pretty much like a good little soldier basically and this egyptologist or actually she's not an egyptologist her name is Catherine Catherine rorig and she is the curator of egyptian art at the met in new york city uh-huh. but she said that even if she wanted to step down, she couldn't at that point because she was officially the pharaoh. She had come forward as like this high priestess and yeah. had been endorsed. And a lot of people were like, OK, well, the gods want you in power at this point. Yeah, I've heard that also she did a lot to kind of like help her own image because there was some controversy with her rising to power in the beginning. So there yes. was a lot about her proving her own like royal lineage and improving her image. And then another thing that I'll talk about in a little bit that I think probably made her more popular amongst her people as well. Yeah. So they basically said that once you took the act, once you took the attributes of kingship, that was it. You were a god. So it's not like it was something that you could just retire from. You were king for the rest of your life. So by the time she had been elevated to that point, it wasn't as if she could just pass it along to her son. Right. You know, he, she would have to then die, right, for him to take over. That's my understanding. Yeah. Now, I mean, I could be wrong because there I are... I didn't look up who took over after she died, so... It is, it is that mouse the third. Little Thuddy the... Third, Thuddy the third. Thuddy three. Thuddy three, her, her son, nephew, takes over after her. But, I mean, I have seen it done previously where... They did do a lot of this co-regency. So, for instance, like when we get to Cleopatra, her father wasn't dead when she became co-regent. Like she was co-regent already. So I'm imagining that if it ever got to the point where she was incapable of ruling just because she was too old or maybe even that she just wasn't interested in it anymore, then at that point she could probably allow him to take over all the practical um, day-to-day tasks of ruling that's just what I would assume that she would be able to do but it never got to that with their relationship and so because of that they were co-regents but he was so much more invested in kind of like learning the art of war and preparing for becoming king in the future and she did all of the practical day in day out ruling of the actual kingdom right Yeah. She was also one of the most prolific builders in ancient Egypt, commissioning hundreds of construction projects. Some say her buildings were grander and more numerous than her Middle Kingdom predecessors. During her reign, so much statuary was produced that almost every major museum with ancient Egyptian artifacts in the world will have Hattie's statuary among their collections. She had several large renovations done to restore what was previously destroyed and was known to go for the bigger and grander designs. She had designed twin obelisks, which at the time were the tallest in the world erected at the entrance of the temple. One still survives as the tallest surviving ancient obelisk in in the earth, on earth. Its twin broke into and toppled. 
Another project was the Chapelle Rouge, which was intended as a shrine to Hattie's life and may have been placed between these two obelisks as well. She also had a mortuary temple built called Temple of Dyer al-Bari. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. It is located in what is now called Valley of the Kings at a site on the west bank of the Nile River where many pharaohs after her would choose to rest. So that was actually like a really big legacy that she was leaving behind is this like very grand piece where all of the the future pharaohs and kings would be buried. right she actually had her father moved to that uh same area and i think it was actually considered one of the wonders of the ancient world at the time yeah. when it was uh when it was built yeah these obelisks the way they describe them and i think i'm saying that word right i apologize you are if I'm saying it wrong yeah um it sounds incredibly like major and grand and like yeah super it, to me it almost sounds like uh the ancient egypt version of the twin towers yeah i mean and the way that they talk about her constructions and the things that she built i realize that there might be a lot of sexism in the way that they they speak about her but they describe her architecture and her designs as being more feminine in nature. Like they're softer uh, and it's at a huge contrast to what was being built at the time. And that's why they were so kind of like revolutionary. Yeah. Another thing about her is that Hatshepsut, she left Egypt better than she found it. She carried out her public works program across the empire and it 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 mostly concentrated on an area around Thebes and she was able to build a network of roadways and sanctuaries. And so she really improved a lot of the infrastructure for like average yeah. everyday people well, in Egypt her as well. Importing and exporting with the, uh, what was it? The punt land, whatever mm-hmm. it was called was such a huge trade, yeah. thing for trade that it made everything more profitable. Yeah, absolutely. So she ended up dying in her 22nd regional year, which is a long time. And for yeah, the time she was, was in her like mid 40s. It was guess. considered very much middle age, yeah. like at the time that she passed away. So there's no contemporary mention of her cause of death that has survived right. until now. After her death, her son, nephew, Thutmose III, attempted to obliterate her name and memory from history by which destroying. I'm like, what the fuck? Because I guess he was even like a really ambitious builder, like his stepmother and all of that. And he's like, but I'm get rid of any evidence that you were ever the ruler. right I mean initially I think people thought that this was very vindictive and it had to have been like based on hate or like he really disliked her or something like that or pride but, or pride but a lot of modern uh, Egyptologists now believe that it wasn't any personal malice that he had towards her it was more about her unconventional reign and the fact that she or the fact that he felt like she set a dangerous precedent moving forward he didn't start having her be wiped from the record until late in his reign it's not like it's something that he did immediately okay he went in and started getting rid of of every like bit of evidence why did he think it was harmful if she did all of these wonderful things just because she was a woman I think that that's what it is so there was a um, Egyptologist in the Smithsonian article who that's basically what he said he said it was to prevent the possibility of another powerful female ever inserting herself into a long line of Egyptian male kings Mm. like it somehow undermined uh, the importance of having a male yeah pharaoh totally and so but I mean like because of this we didn't even know anything about her for a really long time scholars knew 
little to nothing about her until 1822 when they were able to decode and read the hieroglyphics on the walls of the Dyer el-Bari. Yeah, I mean, and even then, like I said, like in the 20s and 30s when Egyptology was really like ramping up and they were learning a lot about uh, what happened at the time, a lot of the literature that was written about her early on was incredibly chauvinistic. Yeah. It depicted her as this like, power-hungry woman who depicted herself as a man when that's very much not the case. I mean, no, she, I, it was more for like survival and status quo. And also I feel like a sign of respect for her to be put in that beard and things like that, because that's the way that they respected their pharaohs at the time. Right. But she was never like, I want to go out of my way to say that she never hid the fact that she was a woman. Like she depicted herself in this very traditional way as a pharaoh with this like beard and in a a very muscular way and with a very pharaoh and that's how you display that right but the inscriptions on her statues uh they always contain some indication of her gender there would be a title such as daughter of ray or feminine word endings and it would sometimes result because combining these feminine word endings with traditional like uh pharaoh titles would often result in things like his majesty herself Right. So she always would like put these things in that are like, I'm being true to who I am while also respecting the tradition of the male leader and things like that. Yes. But she's just stepping in the plate like I am the man now. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm the captain now. So in 2007, Egyptian archaeologist Zahi Hawass identified a previously excavated royal mummy as Hatshepsut. And Catherine Rowing, who I mentioned earlier, is among the scholars awaiting more evidence to uh, bolster whether or not this is actually her. Right. The mummy is in a museum in Cairo right now, but they are still looking to positively identify. And the reason why they think it might be her is because they found her in the Valley of the Kings. Yeah. Which would stand to reason that it's maybe, possibly, probably a uh, female king. So we will see the evidence is not conclusive as of yet. But to I think she's continued. so cool. Like, she's honestly, so cool. might be my favorite of these three. Yeah. I just think that she's so fun. So. I can't pick. I don't know. I feel like maybe after we've discussed all three of them, I can tell you which one's my favorite. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's hop to the next one. This one lived in my memory or in my brain, takes up lots of my brain space, and that is Nefertiti because her bust, I remember Not her boobs. Not her her boobs. The bust of Nefertiti, infamous, probably one of the most, like, infamous ancient Egyptian images. Statues, images, yeah, yeah, ever. That you might see. She is so beautiful like there's just like something really almost modern in her yeah in that in that bust of her uh that I just can't get over like I just think it's it's so gorgeous well and what's crazy is that she really is one of the most like famous icons of ancient Egypt except for you know Cleopatra and things like that but who she was was relatively and still is relatively unknown in a lot of ways there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation marks and speculation Mm -hmm. and theories and things like that which is of course things that we love but it's harder to give you like clear clear facts on everything because there's like alternative stories to just right. about every I mean, fact about her you kind of have to pick a lane because there are people who believe a lot of different things uh so whenever i was doing the prep for this episode i went with what i saw reported most often so almost nothing is known about nefertiti's life prior to her marriage to Atkinhaten, but some egyptologists a lot of them you know believe that she grew up in the royal palace at thebes and was probably the daughter of the vizier to amenhotep the third so her father was probably a man named i or a a y yeah they go back and forth with who her parentage is but this is also the one that i saw for the most part Yes, and so she was engaged um, then to his son, Amenhotep. So I'm, I don't know exactly what a vizier does, but they must be pretty high ranking if a pharaoh is going to be like, sure, your daughter can marry my son. And yeah. it should also be said that unlike Cleopatra, who I feel like a lot of speculation or a lot of gossip and, and all of, of these things, this lore has been kind of woven into her story, um, Nefertiti was a great beauty even at the time. Her like, name actually means in English, the beautiful woman has come. Yeah, I mean, she's she was considered beautiful. She was a babe. Even even at the time. I also read that she was 4'6", and that that was the average height for a woman. What? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so Nefertiti, just like with Hattie, she was Akhenaten's first wife, or I don't know if she was the first. I have favorite. I just read first, but I have written favorite. But I think she was also his first wife, which is why she ascended to rule with him. The primary wife. Yes. Regardless of, I don't know how that works as far as like marriage order. I always assume that the first wife is the primary wife, but she was the- I don't know. I wrote favorite. I must have read that in some article. She was the primary wife. Yes. Yeah. And they were really known as being this couple that changed 
the religion of ancient Egypt for a time while they were ruling. I it always, was this major culture yes, shift. I always thought that this story was so fascinating because it is. the <laughs> gods of ancient Egypt, like I said earlier, like that's part of what makes studying them so like interesting. And they came in and like changed it. Right. So they had in ancient Egypt, a lot of the reading I was doing was talking about how there were different cults to each god. And a cult didn't mean the same thing that it means right now. Right. It was more just like everyone had a favorite different, god. It was different followers for different gods. Right. So, right. Y- you know, you all are the cult of your angry neighborhood feminist. Welcome. <laughs> Hi. Uh, but yes, so early on, she was very much an adherent to the cult of Aten, which is the sun deity from an early age. And so it's said that whenever she got with... Um, Akhenaten. Akhenaten. My friend, so when I was in hair, we all had to, um, if you didn't have a name in the show, if you were in the ensemble, you had to pick a name. And my friend was Akhenaten. And I thought it was Akhenaken Akhenaken. the entire time (laughs) until I did research for this episode. It's Akhenaten. Yes. So at the time when she married him, he was Amenhotep the fourth. And after the death of Amenhotep the third, she became queen of Egypt and it is at this stage that some co- that some scholars claim that she exerted her influence on Amenhotep IV to abandon the ancient religion of Egypt and initiate his religious reforms and it, they established and they established the monotheistic religion centered on Aten it is at this time that he changed his name to Akhenaten yeah yes wow all of that. So with this change of religion, Akhenaten departed from traditional images of early pharaohs and instead was depicted with hips resembling a female figure and exaggerated features, which I found really interesting. Um, like even Akhenaten himself was portrayed much mm-hmm. more delicately. You can see it if you compare the like um, sculpture at the time of like his sculpture to previous pharaohs. Yeah. There is a difference in the style there's a a stylistic difference yeah their stature is uh perceived as being very different neff is featured next to her husband in many pieces of art dedicated to them with her often shown in positions of power and authority above her husband even uh with her leading the worship of Aten or driving a chariot or smiting an enemy right and there's a lot of speculation as to how devout they actually were like if they were real proponents of this god and this religion. right because they also moved the capital city and things like this so it could have maybe been like a politically motivated right. move yes because they felt like there was a lot of power the priests of the god of amun um was had a lot of power because he was so extremely popular and he is actually the god that was the most popular during Hatshepsut's reign. It was Amun or something like that, right? Yeah, Amun. 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 Okay, yeah. 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 And she was considered um, basically like his daughter. Like Hatshepsut was like, that was part of how they got the people to listen to her is there was an Mm. oracle of Amun who was like, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. But there, there was an oracle of his that was like, she's meant to rule. Hattie is meant to rule. She is his daughter. There was too much influence of his followers. And I think that that was making the ruling class kind of nervous. Right. And so I'm not sure how much of this 
kind of switching it up and going to this monotheistic religion for Aten was because they truly, truly were devout believers in it or because they wanted to... Or to perpetuate their power further, yeah. Yeah, to pull away from this other thing that was happening. I found it interesting that Nefertiti would give birth to six daughters and Akhenaten started taking other wives as well. And Akhenaten married his own sister... With of whom course. he fathered the future King Tut, wouldn't yes. you know? Yeah, I mean, and King Tut, I watched a really interesting thing on, uh, I think, History Channel, uh-huh. where King Tut had so many health issues. Like, I bet he did. Uh, and they think that that contributed to his early death, because he died at like 14. He was yeah. like a boy king. Yeah. And they think that a lot of those issues were because he was so inbred. Yeah. Yeah. His parents were siblings. Yeah. It's a real problem. It's a real big problem. So images which have survived depict Nefertiti uh, officiating at religious services, receiving foreign dignitaries, moderating diplomatic meetings, and even in the traditional royal role of the king, smiting the enemies of Egypt. She is depicted in many archaeological sites as equal in stature to the king and None of these images would have been created if there was not at least some truth behind these stories. So she must have wielded yeah. more power than any woman in Egypt, like up to this point. Well, and I think she was also like very hated after the fact, too, because after their rule was over, Egypt went back to more of their like. Re- traditional religious views and kind of started bad-mouthing Akhenaten and Nefertiti. His monuments were dismantled and hidden and his statues were destroyed. His name was even excluded from the list of rulers compiled by later pharaohs. They were like, let's pretend... Nefertiti's were? No, Akhenaten's Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. So he... And I think that that's part... Because they were a team in a lot of ways. He's described as the enemy or the criminal in archival records. And so I wonder if part of this, because they were seen as this like power couple that like changed everything and then they were like fuck that we're changing it back if there was like a lack of want to like give that same amount of respect to her because of that as well I think a lot of people had a a big problem with them changing the way that things were done I think it was just like yeah you came in you destroyed you know how many hundreds of years of tradition in a place that we've already established is very traditional. Yeah. You know, that they've always kind of stuck to the status quo as far as like how things go. And you have this Pharaoh and his wife who come in and totally disrupt the way that things have been operating. And I think that there was a lot of resentment for that and a lot of resistance. I mean, you've got all these people who are holding these high like political... Um, positions who have been undermined because you've come in and said, we don't believe in all these other gods anymore. So if you are a high priest to any of these other gods, your position has now been completely undermined. And I think that that was a real issue. That's not going to make them popular. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely an issue. So Nefertiti disappears from the historical record around the 12th year of Akhenaten's 17-year reign. And they do believe that she lived longer than her husband did. Yeah, so there's a ton of speculation about what happened here. So she's officially off of the record and it does happen almost immediately following the death of their daughter. So their daughter died in childbirth at 13. Oh, she is a child. Yeah, so she was 13 and she died in childbirth and that's kind of one of the last depictions of Nefertiti is her and Akhenaten weeping. There's a like a a, a mural or some some depiction of them weeping over their daughter's body. 
And then following that, you really don't see anything about Nefertiti in the historical record after that point. But there are many scholars that believe that she became her husband's official co-regent under a different name, Nefer-Neferaten, at that time. And then Akhenaten was followed as a pharaoh by, and I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not going to be able to say this right. Um, Smenkare. Smenkare. We'll go with that. Sure. Smank. Smanky. Yes. Oh, Smanky, who some historians suggest may have been another name for Nefertiti. Yeah. yeah. So and they're saying that like she continued to rule mm-hmm. even after her husband's death. Under a different name. Yeah. Yes. Which, and I mean, could, I wouldn't put a pastor. I wouldn't put a pastor either. And there is there is some evidence to suggest this, although, you know, of course, it's all just speculation. But even before she was erased from the official record, she was already kind of in the same way that... Hatshepsut was doing she was kind of already portraying herself in a more masculine fashion right so I think that they kind of saw that as preparation for her to basically make an an entirely new identity shift right and the leaning proponent for this theory which is uh, Zari Hawass who I've mentioned before he wrote the king Shmenkare not saying that right, is known as the male in the company of Meridian as his queen. However, his throne name was was virtually identical to that of Akhenaten's co-regent. So there's a lot of like parallels that are happening Wouldn't there. Surprise that, me. that might make you think that like there's only very subtle changes between yeah. the depictions of Nefertiti and Smanky. And, and good old Schmanky. So good old Schmanky. People think that maybe that's what happened there. Yeah, and there's also been a lot of interesting developments when it comes to discovering Um, her body, her mummy, and things like that. There were two female mummies that were found in the royal tomb that could be Nefertiti, and there's one where uh, they did DNA analysis on it because they were showing that she had her left arm bent over her chest in the queenly pose, Uh, but DNA analysis couldn't get enough data to be sure, but confirmed that the person was a member of the 18th Dynasty royal line. So it looks like it very well could have been the body of Nefertiti. Yeah. So this one is kind of a bit of a a mystery, but, and we can't go into it here because we don't have enough time, but if you are interested in this story, I know that History.com and I think also Nat Geo put out very interesting episodes talking about Akhenaten and Nefertiti, I highly suggest you go look at those because I find this so fascinating. Like there are always reformers, there are always people of every generation, even going back this far, who truly do feel like they can come in and they can make a change and they can be radicals in this way. And I really feel like that's who these people were. Like they were like, we're going to make a radical change, right? And in some ways, it may have blown up in their face, but... But they did it. But they did it, but and they I think that's so cool. Rackin' did it. And also, just gorgeous. Gorgeous. Just so beautiful. Just gorgeous. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about some of who we didn't know if she was gorgeous or not. Let's talk about Cleopatra. Let's talk about the biggie. The big because biggie. I feel like Cleopatra... Cleopatra has a feminist footprint. Yes. On modern society. And let's be real, she may have been... A psychopath. (laughs) For real. She she very much may have been a psychopath. Like, she is a very scary lady. However, 
she represented something that I think there's a reason why we still look at Cleopatra. We and must we think, revere her, I feel like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, also just like there's something about a woman who does not give a fuck. And like, yes, she's terrifying uh, because she's ruthless. Yeah. But it's almost that ruthlessness that makes people admire her today because it's so counter to our traditional ideas of femininity. Especially for what we would think of as a woman during this time, you know? Yeah, I mean... Even though we know now that, you know, women during this time in ancient Egypt were, you know, much more like us than I think we would have thought before. But I think to a lot of us, hearing someone who was as powerful as she was, it is very, like, aspirational. Yeah, I mean, even now, like, yes, you have to separate all of the murder and the incest and the other things about her life that were so like, ooh. I mean, let's just talk about. So, is it Ptolemy's or is it's, the P I think silent? it's Ptolemy. Yeah. Ptolemy's. Yeah. They were rough. Let's talk about these fucking Ptolemy's, Whoa. right? So, they consider themselves to be descendants of Alex. Of, I was going to say just Alex the Great. Alex the Great. Our of good Alex, friend Alex. <laughs> of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian king who con- who conquered the known world. So, Cleopatra was not Egyptian. She was Macedonian. Um, Ptolemy was his general and some say his half-brother. After Alex died and his empire was broken up, Egypt fell into the hands of Ptolemy and the dynasty was thus born. For the Ptolemies, all male descendants were called Ptolemy, while most female descendants were called Cleopatra, but not all. The Ptolemies, but a lot of them. But Jesus. a lot of them. It's like very so confusing. It was how confusing. I was like, okay, which one are we talking about? I know. I really had to look it up because then sometimes they talk about Cleopatra two, and I'm like, wait, wait, no, we're talking about Cleopatra, right? Because eight. nowadays we think about Cleopatra as Cleopatra, but really we're talking about Cleopatra the seventh. Like yeah, that, that's seventh. Yeah, that's our. That's what we're going to refer to as our Cleopatra. As yeah. Cleopatra the seventh. Anything else is is a different person. But yeah, I mean, like there's Cleopatra the second, Cleopatra the third. And they all did some messed up stuff. Yeah. So between the fourth and 14th monarchs, things got a little nasty between the Ptolemies. They lived in such a way that they lived in such a way where they killed as many of their close relatives as they possibly could. Gotta do it. Usually in a very painful and public way. Gotta get them out of the way. All in the name of power. Yeah, I mean, listen, you have to do it because to me, it really feels like... But you have to. It really feels like a combination of the Roy's from Succession. Yes. If they had the same kind of like murderous instincts as like Tony Soprano. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Because like... Like when you watch Succession, like they're not gonna kill each other. But but they want to. you know that if it had been like acceptable for them to kill each other they would be killing each other and like that's what's happening here like they know that they can and they're going to in order to get each other out of the way yeah there is no sibling loyalty or love with any of the ptolemies no they they have no familial um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kinship whatsoever. There's no rallying around your family. Even when you're married to them. Even when you're married to them, you better sleep with one eye goddamn open. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> if I was married to Cleopatra, I would never sleep. I would <laughs> never sleep. Like I mean, in either way. That um, woman's It's terrifying. funny because that Kara Cooney in one of the History.com articles I was reading described uh, the life of the Ptolemies as being very PTSD-inducing. <laughs> Wouldn't it be? I feel that. I feel that. (laughs) In fact, you want to kill all your siblings because you're like, at least I don't have to worry about them killing me. I'll never have a good night's sleep if I know they're still alive. Yeah. Like one of them is going to put 
rat poison in my cereal in the morning. Yes. I don't know. So some of these stories I thought were so interesting. I think we read the same article, the history.com article with Kara yeah. Cooney talking about this. And she talks about how, just to set the scene for what Cleopatra, our Cleopatra, was born into, Cleopatra II, so an ancestor of our Cleopatra, she married her brother, of course. Then she got pissed at him during an argument and had him killed. And then she married another brother. And then her daughter, Cleopatra III, overthrew her, Cleopatra II, and took up with her uncle, Cleopatra II's brother. Who is another brother that she was married to or wasn't married to? I think to? it's one that she was not married to. There's Trace brothers. Okay. okay. So far, yes. And so... After she married her uncle, her mother's brother, she kicked her mother out into exile. And then the uncle sent Cleopatra II, his sister, a package containing her son, his nephew, cut up into little bits as a birthday present. Yep. It's like, happy birthday, sis. Here's your baby. I cut him up. No big deal. Because then later they ended up getting like they resolved their issues for political I know, reasons. They were like, let's just put this behind They're like, us I guess we family. Can, we can get together for <laughs> Thanksgiving. It's fine. Like, Thanksgiving in ancient Egypt. Let's do it. It's so like it is what wild. It's Game of Thrones shit. Like, you I, can't write it. The things if I had a sister, I would not forgive her for. And yet <laughs> you murdered her child. And it's absolutely insane. It's crazy. That's just a fun fact. Side note. But I feel like it really does set the scene to how Cleopatra becomes who she is. Yeah. She learned a lot. I feel like from her. She's got that like that familial trauma going on. You know, she knows it's it's, evolution is taking course. You've got um, generational trauma happening and then also just like a a good business sense a lot of charisma and like, a ton of fucking smarts like yes she was really well educated she could speak a bunch of languages including egyptian ethiopian trogodite hebrew arabic syrian Median, she's a genius Parthian, i really do and latin yeah she was so so smart and she was able to read and write in three of those languages too incredible crazy she was taught by a tutor named philostratos from whom she learned a lot about the greek arts and philosophy she studied at the library of alexandria and she would write uh, medical texts and stuff which would inspire some of her father's physicians on the royal court so she actually had like this very like medical mind as well which is something I didn't know about her at all yes I mean and even with Cleopatra I think people oftentimes think about Cleopatra as though she ruled in her own right which is not really the case like we said earlier she assisted her father she assisted her father and then her brothers and then was co-regent to her infant son right uh, which she put in place obviously very deliberately so that she could rule on her own basically but so much of this I have to think is just like man clearly Cleopatra was the right person for the job she was she was perfect for the job you should have just let her do it rather than like making her go through all of this stuff you know what Hillary was also right for the job and we got stuck with Trump yikes (laughs) yikes uh, so after she married her brother, Ptolemy the 13th. It is the 13th. Yes. I wrote it in parentheticals. I just did to not. Be sure. <laughs> I wrote it in Roman numerals. So I had to take a second. Oh, uh, man. That's one of my educational blockers is Roman numerals. It takes me like a minute to like remember it all. So I have to write in 
parentheses. I always I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, so after she married her brother, she was 18. He was 10, which again, like just let her rule. Like gross. she's 18. Just let her do it. Like you don't, don't make her marry to... her fucking 10 year old brother. It's gross. weird. It's weird. Stop it. Uh, so she initially was run out of Egypt by him when she allegedly tried to take sole possession of the throne because yeah. She, come on come on like she's 18 and her husband brother is 10 and she would just be better at the job Obviously. like just let her do it if you want something done right go get it go get it do it girl your boss. damn self girl oh, boss God. your way to the top stop if i ever hear so girl boss again i'm gonna vomit onto this microphone uh you should do an episode on that yeah uh so in exile she earned the favor of julius caesar earned the favor Wink, wink, of Julius Caesar. And she teamed up with him and an army of mercenaries. Because she wanted to get back at her fucking brother. Yeah, well, she's like, I want Egypt back. Yeah. This is ridiculous. I'm in exile. I shouldn't be. I have smarts. I have charm. I'm going to use those things to get back into Egypt. And she totally did. And this is when the infamous, like, she was smuggled in to see, have a conference with with Julius Caesar wrapped up in a rug. Yeah, yeah. This is when all of that happened. And she ends up defeating her brother in battle and it ends with him drowning to death in the Nile. So one brother, one sibling down, down, right? So when she gets back to Egypt, she marries her other brother, also named Ptolemy. I feel like you have to have some serious like daddy issues. So I just started calling them by the number. So the first one I just called 13 in my notes. This one I just called 14 in my notes. Yikes. It's (laughs) it's not great. I don't love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But to her credit, she doesn't have any children with her brothers, so that's good. Yes. She did, however, did we mention that she had a baby with Caesar? We haven't yet, no. Okay, so although she married 14, around 47 BC, they had a son, Ptolemy Caesar. And he was yes. known to the Egyptian people as Caesarian or Little Caesar, which is just adorable. all bad. I will refer to him from henceforth as Little Caesar or C-section or Caesarian section from here on out. Yikes. Um... But so after she marries 14. 14, she is believed to have had him murdered in a bid to make her son co-ruler, which, again, very, very smart. So she knows that she wants to rule Egypt. She There's can only one person left. She can only rule as a co-regent. She has a son. So if she kills her brother, she can make her son the regent. He's the king now of, of Egypt. She's the co-regent technically, but he's a baby. So yeah, little, she's in charge. Little three-year-old C-section cannot rule the country. That's right. So she also engineered the execution of her sister, Arsinoe, um, who was considered to be a rival to the throne. So she had already exiled her. She was like GTFO out of Egypt. <laughs> Just like what happened to her. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but Arsinoe didn't get a army of people to fight back. Right. And I don't know. I'm sure that there's, of course, there's a lot of um, historians who could speak on that. I don't know what all Arsinoe had going on, but not as much as Cleopatra had going on. And she struck first and yeah. had, had her sister executed. So she is the only remaining sibling yeah. at this point. Things are looking good. She has full reign for the most part, except for her three-year-old son. Um, but there was conflict in Rome against Caesar versus Mark Anthony, Octavian. Anthony, and Le- yeah. What did I say? Anthony. Oh, shut Which up. is the singer. 
That's true. Mark Anthony, Mark Anthony, <laughs> Octavian, and Lepidus. Both sides wanted Cleo's support, and after some stalling, she sent four Roman legions stationed in Egypt by Caesar to support the triumvirate. And this led to Mark Antony and Octavian dividing power in Rome. Mark then called upon Cleo to come to the city of Tarsus, which is south of modern Turkey, to tell her the role she played in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination. According to the story dramatized by Mr. William Shakespeare, Cleo sailed to Tarsus in an elaborate ship dressed in robes of Isis, and Antony was immediately seduced by her charms. Okay. Thank you. She was like 14, I yeah. think, but all right. But all right. He agreed to protect Egypt and Cleo's crown and promised to help her remove her younger sister, Arsenal, which we are kind of going mm-hmm. out of order here, yeah. but it's all kind of happening at the same time. Yes. <laughs> so he was like, you want to get rid of your sister? I will help you. Yeah, no problem. So I want to point out here, you know, when kind of looking at these people through a feminist perspective, Cleopatra is often depicted as a seductress. But as Kara Cooney points out in that Nat Geo article or the Smithsonian article, whichever one it was, I think it's more that she uses her reproductive abilities more like a man to create a legacy. She was smart in that way. Yeah. And she knew strategically how to set up her own child in a certain way to make her powerful and then her son be the next in line. It it was actually really genius. And I feel like a lot of people didn't do this uh, as much as she did, where she knew that a lot of her power, unfortunately, because the patriarchy came from her ability to reproduce. And she used that to her benefit. So she had children as a matter as a matter of political strategy, birthing children with two Roman warlords, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Yeah, that was creating like a freaking, I was going to say power couple, but that's not what I'm looking but for. But it's an alliance, a blood that's alliance. That's what I'm looking for. It's a blood yeah. alliance with two other like super powerful right. civilizations. Yes, yes. And then she carefully placed each child in charge of a different part of her growing empire. So even though they were children or, you know, like, toddlers at the time she kind of put them in competition with western roman empire like she knew what she was doing it was very very strategic so roman propaganda painted cleopatra as a debauched tentress this like seductress kind of character very femme fatale as a way to uh, smite her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she used her sex appeal as a political weapon. And we're not talking about femme fatale time period, right? Like, no. We're, we're talking, this is like B.C. This is like 49 B.C. You're talking ancient times. Um, and she is a very self-possessed woman in control of her sexuality. Not a thing that happened at all at no. this time period. So what we love about Cleopatra and why I think we hold her or hold on to her as a feminist icon is because she was unapologetic about who she was and what she wanted. And yes, like there's so much like there's so much stuff about Cleopatra's personality and like the, the things she did that are like, you know, like definitely very sketchy. But but I think you have to put it also within the context of how things operated at the time and also with the means of garnering power for a woman at this time and what that had to take to get there. And I think that though we could see her as being incredibly ruthless and cruel in so many ways, her siblings were trying to kill her as much as she was trying to kill them. And this was, it seems like to me, the way of life then. Like it wasn't like she was particularly terrible 
It just well, seems yeah. like in our eyes, looking back on it now, we can see where she probably wouldn't be someone I'd want to get drinks with. Right. I mean, like there were so many roadblockers put up to prevent her from succeeding or per- to prevent her from being powerful. And she really disregarded every single one of those. I think she was just fucking smart. She probably wasn't here to take any of your shit. She wasn't going to be someone that you could walk all over. And that probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I I think she was also just very like she saw things in a very black and white way is Mm -hmm. kind of how I interpret it. Where like she saw that like people were going to say she knew that her her sexuality was a weapon yep. that she could use in order to gain power. She also knew that society would look down on her or judge her for doing that. And she said, well, that doesn't matter to because me. Because I'll have my power anyway. Fuck you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas for so many of us, I mean, women especially are raised so often to be like people pleasers and to make sure that. Oh, especially to revere to men too. Right. Yes. To make sure that we are there supporting and we're them adhering. so that they can succeed rather yes. than taking it on ourselves. Yeah, and we're adhering to all of these like social structures that have been put in place and it's very much drilled into us how important it is to do that. Yeah. And Cleopatra said, I don't care. And I think that that is why she remains as like this huge feminist icon yeah. for and all of us. And there's so much lore to her story as well. Like there's all these questions around her death. Yeah, I mean, many believe, you know, it was after uh, Mark Antony's death. She like locked herself away and was like weeping her with her female servants and poisoned herself with a snake. Right. I mean, and we don't know that that's how she went. No. We do know that also, and I want to just say this before we talk about her death, that like she also led warships. Like she did things that I feel like a lot of leaders at the time, not just female leaders, didn't necessarily do themselves. Right. Uh, She, when she was married to Mark Antony, she personally led several Egyptian warships into the fray alongside Antony's fleet, which is not something that I feel like was done super super often necessarily back then especially for a woman but when it comes to her death yes there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not I think that there is so much beauty in the idea that she had this very poetic ending where she got an asp or a cobra to bite her and that's how she died and it's it's very poetic yes and we don't know if that's exactly how she died but we do know or most people agree that she did take her own fate into her own hands. And I think that that's something too that we hold on to as like this woman was so in control of like what happened to her. Up to the very last second. Yeah, that when she knew that like the chips were down and it was going down, that she was going to make the call how it was going to happen. And she did take her own life. How, we don't know precisely. Um, But that is... Most people agree that she did take her own life. So, which adds more to the intrigue. Yeah. I mean, I, I just find there's a reason why people find her so fascinating. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that we would necessarily think she's a good person, but I think that she did embolden so many people. And I think it's also, women. it's also a very great story to look to for any young girl who wants to achieve a level of success, whether it be politically or any sort of place of power, I think that though, obviously, murder is not the answer and marrying your brother and things like that is not the answer. I still think that there's like a great 
moral to like the dumbed down version of her story that speaks to a lot of young women and their ambition and their smarts and like having that self-assurance and knowing that you're you're worth it enough to have that power where I feel like so many don't of apologize us don't, yeah we yeah. don't feel like we possess that power naturally where I think a lot of boys and men are born yes thinking that they can already get that power if they yeah like there's I think that people love including myself I think that there is this people love the idea of Cleopatra because she represents this confidence that we wish we could have right like this self-assuredness of like I'm gonna wrap myself in a rug and present myself to possibly the most powerful man in the world yeah at this point and I know that I can convince him to do what I want him to do. Yeah. And like that is, there's something to be said for like that kind of confidence is like that unapologetic confidence is incredible. And the way that she garnered her own sexuality too is something that we still strive for to this day. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that's really inspirational for us all as well, because while she was seen in a very negative light for the way that she garnered her own sexuality, she knew that that too was part of her power. Yeah. So I think all three of these women have something to teach us. And I think that that's so cool. I, I love looking at history in this way. And this might seem like kind of an odd first subject for Women's History Month. I mean, we went way back in history. We went we went way, way back. But there's a reason why these stories persist. Uh, and Cleopatra in particular persists in such a way. And then there are also our, our good old Hattie, who maybe like a lot of us didn't know about, but who was so incredibly instrumental to the idea or the vision that we all have in our heads of ancient Egypt today she was so instrumental in forming that yeah I think is really cool to know about that it's women like you know these women did all these great things for this civilization that we still cannot shut up about yep you know that's cool who run the world girls obviously All right, that's all we've got for you today. Join us next week for another week of Women's History Month. I don't know what we're giving you. We don't know either. Yeah, Wait and find out. Um, If you have any topics that you would like for us to discuss in the future, you can go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to check out our merch, you can do so by clicking the link in our bio on our Instagram or going to the link in your show notes wherever you're listening. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the fellow listeners on the group page. Last but certainly not least, we have so many exciting things coming your way. If you would like to show us some extra love and support, please hop on over to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. All right, so we got for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to raise on. Bye. Six girls. I'm Cassie Waters. Bridget Nilsson. Mariella Williams. I'm Gloria Smith. I'm Annabelle Pearl. I'm Nadia Olson. One book. Light face, dark ascends, and whisper in shadow. And a demon from hell. Calling Darkness. Available wherever you listen to your podcasts.